Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. Hey, everybody, we are back with another guest that we are talking kind of the opportunities from the AEC space inside of the real estate development industry. Today's guest is a good friend of mine. We actually met on a construction project, a, a government construction project, military construction project at Aberdeen Proving Ground. He was with Turner Construction at the time. I was with the Corps of Engineers as the resident engineer. So please welcome to the show, Mark Cartella. What's up, Mark? Mr. Kramer, how we doing? Never better. Excellent. Great to have you on the show. Excited to, to dive in. Every show starts the same way. I may have let us off a little bit with, I think your career started at Turner, but take us back to college. Take us back to how you made the decision to end up in the space and then your journey from Turner to where you're at today. Yeah, sure. So thanks for having me, Big J. This is, is going to be a lot of fun, I'm sure. So rewind several years ago, I was a student athlete at Drexel University and my major was mechanical engineering and I was part of the co-op program there. So I did three different co-ops. The first two was actually with DuPont under the mechanical engineering curriculum and had a good experience there. And actually it was DuPont Marshall Laboratory, which is currently now Penovation. So it's right there on South 34th Street mm. in University City. So I drive by there and again, I get a little nostalgic because it was not Penovation when I was in college. Again, I'm starting to date myself. But So was that the facilities management group that you were interning it with? It was, yeah. Okay. yeah. And it was an R&D facility for performance coding, the performance coding business of DuPont. Cool. Uh, so yeah, they it's unfortunately closed that. But again, where one door closes, another one opens. And that's when Canon was able to acquire that real estate and make it what it is today. Really big plans for that piece of real estate. But after doing those two co-ops, I realized that mechanical engineering was not maybe something I wanted to do for the rest of my career. So then I actually changed majors from mechanical engineering to architect architectural engineering with a concentration in mechanical systems because of I had credits or a lot of credits on the mechanical engineering degree, I was able to get concentration and not have to load up on credits if, you know, it, that I would have otherwise. And the reason why I transitioned was I read a couple books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Think and Grow Rich, and got bit by the real estate bug. And there was a few mentors in my life at the time that were getting involved with real estate. It opened up my, my, my eyes to that industry. And so that's why I transitioned from mechanical engineering to architecture. Okay. Um, so my third co-op was actually with PHA, the Philadelphia Housing Authority. Uh, I don't um, think I knew that. No? Okay. And it was a very good experience there. I learned a lot in terms of not only construction of affordable housing in Philadelphia. It opened my eyes to not only the need of affordable housing, but also some of the complex financial capital stacks that go into um, an affordable housing development. And so I was actually helping to manage the Lucian E. Blackwell homes out in West Philadelphia. So I was like, yeah, that really kind of excited me. I felt really blessed to have that opportunity there. And I wanted to have a career in real estate. And so right after or right after graduating um, from, from Drexel, I got a job with a small or smaller, actually they weren't that small, but I was a developer by the name of TH Properties okay. out in Harleysville, Pennsylvania. And that's where I started my career. And now I graduated right before the great financial crisis. So as we know, the great recession. 
And I did about eight to nine months there. I was in the land approvals division of TH property and really enjoyed it. But it just was not a good time to be in that profession, being so green in my career. I saw the writing on the wall and preemptively jumped ship and went crawling back to Turner with kind of my tail between my legs saying, hey, guys, do you still have that job opportunity that I turned down almost a year ago? That, Unfortunately for me, there was, and that's where fate led us to let us have the opportunity to work together, BJ. How long ago was that? That was too long. 15 years? <laughs> yeah. Time flies yeah. and you're having fun. No doubt. Hunkered down, if you recall then, the only entity building at that time was the U.S. government, at least here in the country. So I tried to find a silver lining there, learn as much as I could, trying to become an, an expert in construction management, kind of learn that business and how that could provide value in professional equity to me, again, being so newly, so new into my career. Talk, talk to us a little bit about what exactly was the role inside of Turner's world, because they're a mega, they're a mega company. Uh, so the type of role that a green engineer graduate is getting at Turner and what you were doing on a day-to-day -day basis there. Yeah, sure. So I started out as a project engineer and we were the engineering slash administrative help on that C4ISR project, which if you remember, was a half billion dollar design build lump sum project that was a joint venture between Turner Tompkins, Runley, Runley and Kinsley. Yeah, yeah. So I still have a Under Armour <laughs> jacket from that team. They were nice jackets, right? They were. So I was in the field as a field engineer, reviewing submittals, managing subcontracts, walking and ensuring QA, QC, so quality control, quality assurance, making sure that what was being built was in conformance with the design document and the submittals and interfacing with the superintendents to make sure that any field conflicts or constructability issues were being worked through, hopefully in an efficient and effective way. So I started out on the engineering side. And then as you probably recall, that project was over three years long. Yep. With any large project like that, you have a lot of engineering administrative uh, work up front, and then that starts to tail off as you go vertical and the buildings are ultimately built. So then I had the opportunity to transition to the field side and become a superintendent, which I liked equally as much. But it gave me a great exposure to not only the engineering side, but also the field work side uh, of a large construction project. And I like to think it, it taught me a lot that I, you know, that knowledge base and the skills that I gained throughout that process, I've been able to apply to what I do today. Yeah. So you stay on that project. Did you go to any project after C4ISR with Turner or did you move to? Yeah, yeah good, good. Yeah. There was actually a short stint that I worked for Grundley after Turner. I don't, I don't okay. know. If, I didn't like, know that. Yeah. Okay. So after that job was coming to an end, things had really slowed down from the, from the residential industry, then started transitioning to the commercial industry. Right. So at the time, that was 2000. 10, 2011, Turner Philly, the Philly business unit was pretty slow, honestly. And so they called and tried to transfer me to New York and then Texas. My wife was in school at the time doing her graduate work and really relocating out of Philadelphia was not a good option for us. Runley so happened to land a project in Philadelphia at the U.S. Cuffson House on 3rd and Chestnut. And they approached me <laughs> saying, hey, if your Turner gig doesn't work out, we'd love to have you. We just got this project in your backyard, literally. So I was living in Philadelphia at the time. And after commuting down to Aberdeen, Maryland every day from Philadelphia for the last three and a half years, that was pretty appealing to me. I went to work for Grunley, but again, I always had that passion to get back into real estate. And while I was at Grunley, another opportunity was presented to me with Aegis Property. And 
Aegis Property Group. They are really a project management slash real estate advisory company headquartered here in Philadelphia. A lot of the former Turner guys and gals were leading the company at the time. Actually, they still are. And I was able to work for them for about seven years and then got more exposed to the ownership side right. of the real estate development project, representing clients, large institutional clients like you know, Virtua, for instance, Drexel University, Dixon College was another client of mine. Bancroft was another client of mine when I, when I was working there. So, you know, that gave me, again, I think more skills to help manage my expectations in the real estate development process from an owner's side. So you basically become an extension of the owner as their real estate development team. Exactly. That's what we would love. They're the the owner's the sponsor, if you will, or the capital partner. They have the need and the mission, and then you're going out and developing and titling, acquiring. You got it. Yep, exactly right. We would love to hear clients call us an extension of their internal team because in our minds, like that's how we approached every deal. We're, we don't learn to think for you. We learn to think like you is kind of what we used to say. Gotcha. And execute their needs for either capital improvements or new construction projects. Cool. How did that opportunity come about? Um, was former Turner people that you... Yeah, it was. I saw the opportunity. Actually, I cold called them, believe it or not. cold called them one one day. I was at Grunley. I'll never forget. I was at the uh, construction trailer. And I said, just gave them a little bit of spiel about myself and the fact that I also worked at Turner. And we knew like a lot of uh, the same folks. I'm talking like to the, to the partners at Aegis at the time. Um, and so that, that got my foot in the door and I interviewed with them and actually got an offer from them on my birthday. I was, I was out to eat with Jen, my wife, and I got a call saying they were willing to give me an offer, which was time. I was stoked because again, it was a step back and just moving into that direct back into that direction. Exactly. All of our listeners never underestimate the power of a cold call. I'm telling you, it, it speaks volume. I agree. Yeah. But not hesitate. If anyone's passionate about doing something new, cold calls can go a long way. Agree. All right. And you were there for how long? About seven years. About okay. seven years. So I had a good run there. In fact, that's how I got to know the uh, the partners at, at Altera. This was representing the joint venture that Altera was part of at the uh, Shirt Quarter Project, which is in Old City, Philadelphia. It has a CVS on the ground floor. And that's at their second market. Okay. So I got to know the partners there and that was about 10 years ago. Although that's where the, though that's where the relationship started. I didn't make the transition from Aegis to Altera until about five years ago. Okay. And that, that brings us to current day. I've been at Altera now for the last five years or so. And tell the audience what Altera does and what you do for Altera. Yeah, sure. I head up development and construction for Altera Property Group. We are a homegrown Philadelphia multifamily development company, and specifically with a focus on multifamily mixed-use assets, but also more recently on the industrial space as well. So in, in the industrial asset class as well, which we have a particular focus within, I would say, a niche of industrial development. Because so when whenever you see industrial assets, typically you think about the big boxes at the Amazon fulfillment centers and manufacturing as well. And we do that, but not as maybe much on, on uh, when compared to industrial outdoor storage. So there's an acronym that really has started at Altera called IOS. And, and it's exactly what it sounds like, industrial outdoor storage. So think low density development that has close proximity to main birds that feed MSAs around the country. And that's been quite the, the burgeoning asset class within the last year to two years. The pandemic really has, I think, accelerated the growth of that and brought national attention to it to the point where now things are becoming more and more competitive. So 
anyway, I'm, the, I'm what, kind of, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I know that we've talked about this before, but industrial outdoor storage, is this just like yards for staging stuff for like infrastructure projects, underground yes. utility projects? Yes. So PSENG yes. or a utility company has a big project or a big infrastructure upgrade going on in an area and you've got some piece of land close proximity that they get to stage vehicles, stage material, that type of Yes, but we wouldn't necessarily lease it for a short-term lease. Typically, these are longer-term leases with sticky tenants. So you mentioned utility companies that they would certainly fit the mold, but a more traditional example would be like a Penske or a URI, United Rentals, like a Maxim Crane, Maersk, the largest shipping container vendor in the world. Any kind of purveyor of equipment, like heavy industrial equipment that needs a large yard that has typically paving and site lighting and fencing. That's like what you think of when you think about a storage yard, but also probably a a 20 to 30,000 square foot building that allows them the ability to maintain their equipment, service their equipment, and and a small administrative space as well. So typically those buildings have two to 3,000 square feet of office. Yeah. It's like in army terms, it's the motor pool. It's a place where all the vehicles get parked and then you have a mechanic garage that you can do maintenance and that's about it. Yeah. And think about Amazon delivery vans, right? Yep. Like, that you see pretty much everywhere you go. If you go out to go grab some milk, like you're seeing an Amazon delivery van, all those vans need a place to park somewhere, right? And so it's becoming a huge need to service the material supply chains, but also the last mile fulfillment center. And they all want to be close to large populated population centers, MSAs. And it's not always as sexy from an approvals entitlement standpoint, because they don't necessarily employ a lot of people and it's not always the most slightly admittedly. We'd like to think we make them as pretty as they can be, but at the end of the day, you're still, it's still a big yard with industrial equipment on it. We're bad. <laughs> now you're more on the multifamily. You personally are more on the multifamily residential side, right? I actually oversee both. Okay. I oversee the development and construction for both. It's just the need for develop, development and construction for a 10 acre storage yard is much different. Less than- intense. In less intense, indeed, than you know what we did at Five Ten North Broad Street, which is four hundred ten apartments over a two story podium with two two levels of underground. Because you brought that up, I want to pick your brain. I know modular construction is a big part of how you guys are delivering projects. Talk to me about modular construction from your view. Maybe give us the elevator pitch to the audience of what modular construction is and what it is not. Yeah, sure. So. Modular construction is something we started to roll out about four and a half years ago for all of our mid-rise multifamily apartment buildings. And mid-rise is defined as what? It's anything below 85 feet. Okay. But for mean average grade. I say that and there's always nuances. We actually, 510 North Broad Street was technically a high rise. There's, you're limited to five stories of wood frame construction in your boxes. And so long as that's within a certain height, you're able to, it all depends on fire engine access, actually. You're able to skirt under some of the high rise required from a building code standpoint. But basically it's offsite construction. People think of modular construction a lot of times, like for mobile homes, construction trailers, and that is true, but it it hasn't been until recently where the industry is, we like to refer to it as the broken paradigm. In construction management, you hear from like the three limiting factors and that's schedule, budget, 
and quality. Other known as cheap, fast, and good. Pick three and go. Or sorry, pick two of the pick three two. and yeah. go. In in real estate development, it's really hard costs, land costs, and rent. And if those three limiting factors don't coexist in some type of equilibrium, projects don't pencil. They don't happen. And so in Philadelphia and probably in the broader region, and I would even say within the Mid-Atlantic to Northeast region, probably on the West Coast as well, modular for Altera, we saw an opportunity there where it helps solve that equilibrium problem, right? Where you're able to build at a cheaper price point, but also deliver a finished product much faster than you would when compared to a traditional stick-built construction building. Now, there's nuances of both of kind of when we do a cost-benefit analysis of modular construction versus stick-frame construction. But really what the competitive advantage that's been afforded to us under modular is that the speed to market is proven extremely valuable. And when I say speed to market, it's basically we can build a 200 plus apartment building in a year and a half, in 18 months, which you can't, it'd be really tough to do it conventionally. So that's one huge advantage. The other huge advantage is that these things are built offsite. Modular construction is also referred to in the industry a lot of times as offsite construction because you're building boxes in a controlled environment offsite, uh, but it's basically just like any other manufacturing pro process. These boxes, these module boxes, are components of the building, and they get delivered, and then they literally get set like building blocks, like Legos, and they come from the factory substantially complete, meaning that all of the interior finishes are done, all the appliances are in place, all the electrical wiring is terminated into the panel. They literally show up to the site, and that you could live in them, notwithstanding the final terminations of the utilities. They, they show up watertight, and then they're set in an array, make your final terminations, and, and you have a completed building. And the speed is, is tremendous. I mean. The first one we did was at 140, was 141 units, and that was at 4125 Chestnut Street in, in Philadelphia. It's the very first modular project we did. And it was 75 boxes, and we averaged roughly 10 boxes a day, set, setting-wise. So if you think about it, we had a completed building like that was fully stacked with modules, 141 apartments within them in less than a two-week two period. So the innovation that modular affords a particular building type really can be impressive and I geek out when it comes to modular construction. So jump in when you went well, when I'm rambling I, here. I think my question is going to be, oh. you go back to the broken paradigm of schedule quality budget. What I heard you say was you get faster to market, you get budget certainty or controlled costs. You can build it less expensive. Yep. Talk to us about quality. Yeah. So quality, you can't convince me that a traditional stick frame construction project for like in a multifamily asset class, a better or more quality building technique than modular construction. Here's why. One is that the modules are being, again, built in a, in a climate controlled, controlled. climate yeah. controlled. They're not susceptible to the elements. They're not susceptible to freezing thaw. Water is a, a non-issue. But two, you have folks on the assembly line that are doing the same thing day in and day out. And there's, there's an expertise that comes into that. It, it, it's when you run into different trades doing different things that are coming all together, or you have, let, let's say, the carpenter doing some finished electrical work because they had to fix a, a, a nail pop that was adjacent to the cover plate. You know, it just yeah. you know, speaking of yeah. that, I mean, that, that happens all the time in a conventionally built product. That doesn't happen in a you know, controlled manufacturing environment that's building dwelling units. There, there's that. And then they're also very robust in terms of how they're built. And they have to be because they have to withstand the rigging, setting, and transport from the factory to the actual job site. So these things are overbuilt. And I'll give you a little example of that. 
there was an incident we had on a past project that we actually had one of the modules fall off a flatbed. Okay, it happened on the highway. I don't mean I don't know how it happened, but these things weigh like fifty thousand pounds. But for whatever reason, it fell off the highway, and um, the thing was one hundred percent intact. We had a structural engineer look at it, and notwithstanding a few little cracks in drop in the interior drywall and some nail pops. There was no broken windows. There was no hardly any racking of cabinets. The entire shell of the, of the module was 100% structurally sound, which is crazy if you think about it. So I'm going to end with this. The other nice thing about how they're, they're built, if you think about it, you have your box that gets set on a box and there's an interstitial space. And these are all wood frame boxes, by the way. There's also right. non-combustible modular manufacturers, but we have not done any of them yet. But you create this very inter, very you create this interstitial space that is great at sound attenuation and vibration control. So you're not having to go back in the field pouring gypcrete over a floor for sound attenuation purposes. It's just not an issue in modular construction because you have so much mass of material and then a separation of material that addresses any kind of vibration concern. All right. So now you've convinced me that it's higher quality, faster to market less expensive to deliver. When does it take over the marketplace? It will never and, take over. And why is that? Because not every building or asset is a good fit for modular. So whenever you have similar floor plates that stack, whenever you have a lot of repetition within your design, that's where modular really shines. You'll also hear like some of the, uh, the opponents of modular construction will say, you'll never be able to achieve custom floor plans and configurations. There's some truth to that. Right. Uh, you can build anything modular, but your efficiencies just go out the window. So where I see a lot of growth opportunity in modular construction or modular building techniques is in multifamily housing, in hospitality housing, or in hospitality. So for instance, hotels, um, as well as some healthcare where you have like ORs, operating rooms that are, they have modular components to them. And they're, they're, there's a lot of repetition within the floor plans design. Are there many examples of healthcare yet? There are. Yeah. Skanska has really been a pioneer of that. Okay. And pre-advertising there, Skanska, we'll shake you down later. <laughs> Since I mentioned uh, Skanska, <laughs> I should mention the modular manufacturing facility that we partner with, and that's VBC, Volumetric Building Company. They do a great job for us, and it's been a very fruitful relationship and partnership really over the last several years, and we look forward to doing more work with them. Awesome. All right. Let's talk about some leadership lessons you've learned through your career or career guidance that you would give to maybe somebody that's at Drexel right now thinking about mechanical engineering versus architectural engineering, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, didn't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, looking at the construction world, what guidance do you have for them as they endeavor into their career path? Yeah. One thing we like to say here at Altera is what do you want to be when you grow up? And we ask ourselves that almost on a daily basis. And what does that really mean? Because I, you don't, I don't think you should ever really grow up. You always should be going back to our previous conversation, BJ. We should, you should always trying to be looking at things with a fresh set of eyes, with a whatever it takes attitude, and have you know, a humble confidence about your team's skill set and your own skill set of being able to figure things out as they come up. I think more times than not, no matter what profession you're in, if you don't. If you lose that kind of youthful gaze or that youthful lens on your day-to-day -day work, you start to get, you start to lose passion. You start to lose yeah. motivation. You start to lose an edge and you just kind of fall into the status quo. 
So I would just maybe say, constantly ask yourself, what do you want to be when you grow up? I ask myself, we ask that all the time in interviews here at Altera, and we constantly ask ourselves that in our like our senior executive meeting. I think you need to foster a certain youth, youthful DNA and this overall culture. So that, that might be one piece of advice. The other piece of advice is, I would say, is I want to quote Abe Lincoln, I think now, wherever you are, be a good one. And careers are journeys. They're marathons. I had multiple employers before joining Altera. And each one, I was able to increase my professional equity and build relationships and kind of figure out where I wanted to go in my career. I was disappointed when I had to leave TH Properties because it was leaving a real estate industry that I thought I would be in for a long time. But when another thing we say, this is maybe cliche, but when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade out of them and just need to make sure you're maintaining a a positive attitude and also appreciating the fact that you can get up and go to work every day. That puts things in perspective for me too. Um, Whether it's a bad day or not, I still have the opportunity and really what is a blessing to go to work every day. There's many in this world that would literally die for that opportunity. Great reminder for everybody out there. Before we go to some rapid fire questions, how much did the co-op degree at Drexel and those internships that you got to bounce around and see different perspectives, how much did that influence your career path? It said it. I learned pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be an automotive engineer. That's why I wanted, I was originally a mechanical engineer. And those experiences for me personally were really invaluable and taught me a ton, not only kind of what I wanted to be when I grew up, but also just like professional etiquette and how to conduct yourselves in an interview. So I think very highly of the program. I wish other schools would offer that as well. I know there are internships, but the co-op program at Drexel is six months, as opposed to a typical internship, which is three months. And it's paid too. I was making some pretty good money as, as a Drexel co-op with no, no bills to pay at the time. And it was a, they were a good few years. That's great. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people and places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. All right, switching gears. um, We know what you do in the office. I know a little bit of what you do outside the office. Four kids. You're a wrestling coach here in town. You recently ran for school board. Talk to us about your passion for giving back to our youth. Yeah, I think we've all had people in our lives, could be a parent, could be a guardian, it could be a teacher, could be a coach, that just leaves um, an impression on you. And that impression will last a lifetime. I have several in my life. So as soon as a person gets to a point in life where they have the capacity to give back to whether it's a coworker or a child or a student, I think that's what builds strong societies. And I think strong societies build culture and strong culture build, builds a great country. So I do, I'm very passionate about coaching as you And I also head up a mentorship here at Altera where we're bringing in disadvantaged students from around the city, using them to what we do here at Altera about the real estate development business, underwriting, deal sourcing, things like that. And we also actually are now participating in the Drexel co-op program. Awesome. Um, yeah. We actually just brought in our first co-op a couple months ago. So really stoked about that. And I think as human beings, that's what we should be doing. As soon as we are in a position of authority, um, and you can define authority in an infinite amount of ways, but as soon as you have the ability, the opportunity to give back, I really think we as human beings should be doing so as much as we can. Awesome.
Any must-read books? I know you already hit on a Think and Grow Rich and a Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Any others? Yeah. What was the other one? Um, the Real Estate Game. That's a good one. I don't think I know that one. Yeah. For any aspiring real estate developers out there, I think it does a great job. It was written by a former Harvard tool professor. Actually, that's the one that Magic Partner at Talterra, also, Leo Adamanos, also highly recommends for aspiring real estate developers or people going into real estate business. Um, good to great is another one. Good to great. I think there's another quote. I forget who said it, but don't be afraid to let go of the good. To go for the great. That was my next question. Favorite quotes. I think, yeah, I shared that one. I also share this one. Big Rocky fan. Rocky Balboa. That's not how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit. Keep on moving forward. All right. Rocky Chief. Oh, I like it. If you could have dinner with three people around the table, dead or alive, who would they be? Oh, man. George Washington is one. Martin Luther King is probably another. And Jesus would be the third. All right. What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want on your tombstone? Oh man, BJ. Look, I, we, I, th I might have shared this before or maybe not. I, my, my family kind of operates by the five F's, faith, family, food, fun, fitness. That's really important. And I, I think a mentor of mine once told me, Mark, that you just have to do everything. And this was in college. And it was when I was trying to evaluate about changing my education, my, my degree, what I wanted to do. I was also a student athlete at the time. And then I was just wearing a bunch of hats. And he came to me as far as you can't quit any of those. You just have to do all. And he was absolutely right. And that's how life is. You have to do everything. And you're not going to be the best at one thing on any given day. But you need to make sure that there's a, there's a balance between the various roles that you have. And it's okay that you're not a superstar one day and not the next. It's just having a healthy balance between those various roles and doing the best of your a, a professional career, a, a family, a member of a family or a not-for-profit. I think we're designed to wear a lot of different hats and it's okay if you're not the best on any given day, but you should do your best to try to be the best at each of those on an average basis, if that makes sense. I like it. It does. Anything else you want to hit on or any encouragement you want to give to our audience, which could be transitioning veterans, recent grads, all the way up to senior executives of both private and public corporations? Yeah. Don't take no for an answer. Be persistent. I think a lot of the special sauce of success, and you can define that however you, you'd like, is just approach and mentality. Having a whatever it takes attitude, being confident in what you know and what you don't know. And if you don't know it, try to get better at it and talk to those people that do know it so you can learn from them. Awesome. Mark Cartella, thank you so much for your time. It's great chatting with you, hearing about the modular industry and everything that you've done through your career. We appreciate it. Thank you, BJ. It's been fun. All right, brother. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.